G'day, today I'm particularly excited actually to have Brandon Quittam on the program. Welcome to Bitcoin People, Brandon. Thanks for having me, Gary. I'm looking forward to it. I remember your avatar on Twitter for quite a while, so it's cool to, to meet the person behind the, the Twitter account. To put a face to the name, and of course, loads of people know your, you know, know your face, uh, and uh, lots of people know you. But there may be, God willing, some people who are listening to this who maybe this is their first taste of Bitcoin. So I'm going to ask you to do a little bit of background, if you wouldn't mind, uh, how you, you know, a little bit about upbringing and kind of how you came to be you and how you came into the Bitcoin space and how you came to be known in the Bitcoin space, how you got to be shot to fame, as it were, in Bitcoin. So uh, I'm going to hand over to you for a bit of background, please. Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in a suburb of Minneapolis, Minnesota, which is a northern state, one of the coldest states in the United States. Mm. And I was a you know kid who likes the outdoors, played sports, did just well enough in school so my parents didn't get too mad, but really didn't find much value in, in a the learning part of school is just like beat the teacher, um, which is kind of a funny theme where school made me not want to learn. And then as soon as I was done with college, I wanted to learn. And all I want to do is optimize my life around learning. Um, a lot of comments there. Um, I think the big thing that stuck with me growing up, though, was I was always an entrepreneur. I probably started 100 little micro ventures from age like five until I, I left my parents' house at age 18. This is lemonade stands. This is car washes. This is dig a pond, fill it with water, grow fish, sell the fish, all kinds of things. Uh, <laughs> most of them failed, but we did have a, a soda pop empire for two years that I'm quite proud of. I hired all the neighbor kids and there was a construction, uh, a new neighborhood going in next to ours. So there's all these new houses being built. And we had walkie talkies and bikes and wagons. And we'd go over there and sell soda to the construction workers. And, you know, you had to learn all the things like, okay, you have to buy your inventory cheaply. So we're clipping coupons and having our parents take us to go buy soda. And um, yeah, so anyways, <laughs> that's kind of in my DNA, <laughs> always tinkering, always building. Um, and then I went to college for engineering and then switched after a year to a business degree. Um, and at that stage of my life, I was like VP of the fraternity, uh, ran the college newspaper. All I wanted to do is be this like high powered business guy. That was sort of what I had my eyes set on. And I started my career at Oracle selling enterprise software after school. And it was about two, three years into that where everything's going great. I'm the young guy in the team, you know, having all the material success I could ever imagine. And people around me being like, wow, everything's going great. But for me, it was just like, this is it. This is what I thought I wanted my whole life. And I realized that I didn't necessarily want this. And I was being groomed for a new role. And I went out to Denver to meet with the team. And I sort of experienced uh, or sort of like saw myself in the shoes of the, of the team I was about to join. And I saw middle-aged people that were uh, deeply unhappy you know, treated the waitresses horribly, uh, most of them abusing alcohol, most of them cheating on their spouse, and just sort of this like masking insecurities and sadness with external stuff in the world. And I'm, I'm a susceptible person to my environment, as I think most people are. And I sort of got cold feet with that path in life. And I realized, well, it's not filling me up. And I'm going to become these people, you know, mm -hmm. in 10 years, if I if I continue this path. 
And so I got home, hit pause on that at Oracle, and I went through a yoga teacher training here in Minneapolis. And that was like 200 hours over eight weeks. So it's practically a second full-time job while working full-time. Mm. And I sort of, I saw a life path in front of me. One was with uh, four happy, you know, interesting all walks of life people who are like really trying to figure themselves out versus this like material success, uh, reputation, society, fame, all those type of things, but not actually fulfilling and not actually happy. And that experience kind of gave me the confidence to realize that maybe I don't have to be this person that society is telling me I'm supposed to be, that I told myself I wanted to be, that my parents were proud of. Um, sort of gave me the confidence to just throw that whole identity away. And about six months later, my girlfriend at the time, now wife, bought a one-way ticket to India. We quit our sales jobs and we started traveling. And we did that for about five years, working remotely, travel the world, build all these little businesses. And in that process, I sort of idolized the like vagabond nomad who doesn't care about material success and seeks experience. And, you know, I went all the way down that rabbit hole and I realized that all those people are uh, equally as full of shit. They just have different clothes, different hair, different <laughs> wants, needs, whatever. And now I'm starting to grow up as a person. I'm realizing, okay, I should stop idolizing these subcultures. And right around that same period, I discovered Bitcoin. And I would say the pendulum went from like frat douchebag sales business guy to like hippie nomad in the middle of nowhere. Uh, and then I found Bitcoin and, and Bitcoin sort of reconciled both of those two learnings where uh, it brought back my sort of capitalist freedom, libertarian sort of like soul inside of me, even if I maybe didn't identify with those terms. Um, but it also made room for this like free and open expression and we can change the world, we can be optimistic, et cetera. And at that time I was a, like capitalism is bad. That was sort of the conclusion I came to. And I came to that conclusion because I was looking around at, um, the system was sort of rigged, it's not working, things all felt corrupt and I was starting to connect dots. However, I misdiagnosed the problem. I thought it was capitalism when really it was money's broken and um, more of like a crony capitalism sort of technocracy type environment. And Bitcoin helped me unravel those things. Um, I came into the rabbit hole in 2017, like any old person trying to make money, uh, trading all the shit coins, thought I was a genius, lost it all in 2018. And then I had a decision point, which is, uh, number one, I have too much pride to just admit I was wrong right away. So first I had to go super deep and figure out what this thing was all about. Um, and to my chagrin, I, I realized that this is very important. I love this stuff. And I decided to sell all my online businesses and essentially reorient my life around this thing because I felt it was the most important thing I could be doing with my life, which is unencumbering humanity uh, from the shackles of fiat money or a less poetic uh, out there word would just be like, make Bitcoin successful because I think it's good for people and I think it's good for humanity. And at that point, I was living in Chiang Mai, Thailand, going to meetups every week and sort of learning and being exposed to a lot of people in the industry. And then a few months later, I wrote the, the first essay, Bitcoin is the Mycelium of Money, which I wrote in 2018. And honestly, I sat on it for about six months before I published it. And I told this story before, but essentially I was intimidated by, and I'd been writing online for a while, like successful online businesses. So not like scared of publishing, but I was scared of uh, publishing something that says Bitcoin's a living organism, 
one at the time, most of the content was around technology or economics or uh, esoteric subjects like that, that maybe I didn't have as big of a grasp on. And here I am saying it's a living organism. And then I published that in 2018. I, I had never gone, had something go viral like that before. All my intellectual heroes in the Bitcoin space are saying nice things and sharing it. And yeah, that sort of catapulted me into the spotlight for that, that bear market, which was a very different time in Bitcoin. Um, but it opened a lot of doors. It it allowed it, it taught me the power of writing online as well, or creating content online, maybe it's a better way to say that, which is you put out your ideas. And as long as they're sufficiently distributed, you're going to find out that there are other people who share your philosophy or like your ideas or resonate with them in some way. And it's sort of like a, a bat signal into the sky and it calls in all your friends, all your allies, all the people who think like you. And so now all of a sudden you're making the entire world feel small because you form these niche communities. And I think content is the best way to uh, sort of establish yourself in that world. And so it's sort of like, write it once and you have never ending inbound on, on your topics because these ideas resonate with people. And yeah, that led to me to various jobs around the industry, did a bunch of nonsense and then met Corey at a Bitcoin conference, Bitcoin, uh, what was it in 2019 in San Francisco? Um, the Bitcoin Miami conference was in SF back then met Corey had a chat a few months later, got, got some lunch and then uh, joined Swan as an advisor in um late 2019 and then been there since still do some writing but it's more of a, a side side hustle side hustle is not the right word i do it mm -hmm. when i have time and i find writing extremely painful but uh, also the most satisfying and some of the most important work i do so um that's a that's a mouthful that's a solid intro <laughs> it sure is a solid intro and there's so many different avenues to explore in that um I've got to ask this question because it forever plays on my mind and I'm always interested in different people's opinions on this. The entrepreneurial spirit in you and then the ambition to be a, a, a you know, big in the in the business world. Um, th that sort of starting point in your life. Nature versus nurture. Where do you reckon that comes from? Okay, so nature versus nurture. Um, I love this question for so many, so many different reasons. But the first one is that I changed my mind on this recently. So it's kind of a fun one to tease out. And I would love some feedback from you on, on my thoughts here. But I started out, um, I would say maybe until 25 to 28, maybe I was a hardcore nurture maximalist, where it was always about the conditions, it's always about the setting. And oh, man, if it you know, if there's unequal outcomes, it must be because the environment was unfair or whatever. And now I just think that that's totally wrong, or I should say mostly wrong. If I had to assign numbers, I would say it's like 90, 80 to 90% nature, 10 to 20% nurture. Um, you could look at physical uh, athletic ability, for example. It doesn't matter how hard I train, I will never be an Olympic sprinter. Um, I have no capacity of doing that based on and that was set in stone from the moment I was born or probably prior to birth um and another another angle here would be um child raise child rearing and I have a a young child at home first one so I'm sort of going through all these cycles like oh my gosh what do we do all these things come up is this normal you know I'll read all these things and I think what where I'm coming to now is that it's super duper intuitive and it's almost like get out of the kid's way. It's mm. it's not 
like as much as I try, I think I only have 10 to 20% to alter the life of the child. Um, and I could be totally wrong about these things, but I just think that the biology is um, extremely powerful and we're just pushing it up or down 10% based on, based on that. So, <laughs> yeah. I reckon I've come to similar conclusions, funnily enough. Um, they talk a lot about epigenetics, I can't get the word out, epigenetics these days, and the fact that you've got these kind of biological markers that get switched or on, on or off according to the nurture. I'm wondering what's in the back of my mind. You know, they say, if you live in real poverty, that can cause great unhappiness, but anything over a certain income per year, $100,000 or something, is the happiness level doesn't change dramatically after that. And I'm wondering if it's the same for nurture. I'm wondering if it's the thing of if you've got a really uh, abusive and difficult environment, then clearly nurture matters. Totally. But as long as it's stable, then it really, there's perhaps not a lot more that can be done. Although, I mean, you'd argue with the Williams sisters, you know, that was all nurture. Uh, the the issue of turning them into tennis champions, so you know I I think it's still it's still undecided. I I don't know that that's um, and they're very different physically. You know, you look at uh, Serena and and um, help me out Venus Venus of course uh, was her name. Uh, so let me do this. You uh, we've gotten into nature. And you started talking about cycles, the cycle of the human being and, and your son who's come onto this planet. I, you've written a couple of articles that you're incredibly well known for. Obviously, there's the mycelium and Bitcoin as a living being. And then we've got your work on the fourth turning. And what I like about those two pieces is one is about nature and all the roots and the mycelium that go on underneath the earth and how everything kind of cross fertilizes one another and sends nutrients and communications under the soil, etc. The other is about cycles. Now, fourth turning is about what I'm going to call relatively short term cycles. I know they're not because, you know, 80, 84 years is a I, I, sip, sip, what's the word? Seculum. Seculum. Thank you. It's two <laughs> words I've lost in a short space of time. And that's like sort of the 84 years, but that's broken down into 20 year periods. But if we go back to, because I'm reading Jason Lowry's theory, thesis at the moment, and a lot of the early part of that is about um, early life, early life on Earth and kind of power projection and they're getting a like like these tiny little almost like bubbles in in porous rocks that would form kind of mouth shapes to absorb nutrients and form life and then we're kind of getting into big like 500 year cycles and stuff like that which is the kind of stuff mark moss gets into so what i'm really curious about is i want to start with evolution and are there have you ever gotten into cycles in evolution is that a space you've explored at all i think the only relevant thing I, i've looked into there is a concept called punctuated equilibrium which looks at the long arc of evolution and what it shows is that there are periods with relative stagnation Yep. Um, very little speciation, maybe the climate's stable, there's no stressors, there's no need to uh, drift genetics at all. 
And then there's periods where there's rapid changes all around, uh, likely due to changes in the climate or some sort of other shift, which requires uh, evolutionary pressure. Um, yeah, so it's like right. flat, exponential, flat, exponential, like that. And that's the history uh, of evolution. Do you see a parallel with that in the fourth turnings, the, the, the four turnings, as it were? Do you think there's periods of exceptional change? Because those are much, those seem to me much smoother cycles. Yeah, I think the answer is yes. I think, I think cycles are like base fabric of reality. Um, if we go down as deep as we possibly could beyond comprehension, beyond words, I think that uh, the cyclical nature of, of reality is just base. That's just like part of the game. And so I think if that's true, then you can extrapolate that to pretty much anything anywhere. Um, it might not be obvious to us that cycles exist everywhere, but I think that that is the nature of reality. And yeah, we just identify the ones that we have the ability to grasp or, or whatever. Um, I think the fourth turning is interesting because what it looks at is um, it's like extremely emergent. It's super human focused, right? No other organism would do this. And right. it's it, it falls back on like, our nature follows this arc where we're young and then we're early adults and then we're middle-aged and then we're old age. And those seasons of life, um, we respond very differently um, based on our environmental stimulus. And I think that's based in evolutionary pressures. And so, yeah, I, I think it cycles all the way down. And I would say that the, is there a correlation with evolution or a correlation with punctuated equilibrium, periods of stagnation and periods of change? And I think the answer is yes. Right. Um, I had a chart. Let's see. I, I made a chart around the supply and demand of order. And I think that's the best way to describe this. And oh, so. Wow. What a concept. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. No, that makes sense. And it relates to the fourth turning. What an interesting idea. Yeah. Yeah. So if, if let's say the demand for order is low. Right. But the supply of order is really high. That would oh, be a time I had that's the psychedelic sixties, right? That's the civil rights era. High yeah. order means institutions are strong. Culture is rigid, but low demand for order is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I don't want to follow the, the Christian church. I don't want to listen to what the old white guys say. You know, the music's boring. Where's all the sex, drugs and rock and roll. Right. So there's this imbalance between the supply and demand and that causes friction in society. And through the fourth turning lens, that's halfway through the 84-year cycle where those two get imbalanced. And it's an internal crisis. Okay, that's a period of uh, religion. Um, all the religious movements in the last 500 years were at that period, halfway in the cycle. Um, and then you'd go to the third turning, so three quarters of the way through, supply of orders low, demand of orders low. That's, that's Gen X. That's the under-parenting, the latchkey kids, it doesn't really matter. That's deregulation. Yeah, right, exactly. And then the fourth turning, it shifts again, right? In that period of time, the demand for order increases, but the supply is still low. And what that means is our institutions are crumbling. We look around, we don't trust our institutions anymore. Mm -hmm. And in the back of our mind, we go, something's wrong here. And the instinct for our species is times are tough and we have to make major change. And so the instinct is to collectivize, join together and solve this large problem. 
We have to reimagine society, redo our institutions because shit, they actually, we actually need these things and they're not serving us. And mm. so that's actually the period we're in now. It's a very tense period. Um, Bitcoiners will not like the instinct. That's why I think part of the reason why Bitcoiners are so obtuse to normal culture today is because normal culture is red versus blue, woke versus anti-woke. There's all these like collectivism impulses. And the mm -hmm. same thing happened in the in the 40s, which was the 30s and 40s, which was the last time we went through a fourth turning, right? Um, massive collectivization at that period. And so it, it's kind of a tension between too much collectivization to solve the problem, which would, would turn into, let's say, what China's doing mm -hmm. versus this like toe the line between we have to work together to solve the problem but we can't go too far because that that actually harms us in the end and just jumping straight into bitcoin here i think bitcoin sort of is a type of institution and i define institutions very loosely this is a a, a structure in society that allows us to cooperate better nick mm -hmm. zabo may define uh, or define a term called social scalability which is i would say a subset of institutions which allows us to scale society, allows us to cooperate better. Examples of that would be like language, right? We can share abstract ideas. It would be property rights. So we have like these baseline set of rules, in which case we know what's fair and what's unfair. And if you follow the rules, everyone plays the game together. Trade, trade, trade creates wealth. Uh, the legal system would be one, right? I think Bitcoin's also an institution and it's, it's a money layer. It's a value layer. It's a... Uh, this invisible membrane that allows us to trade value and allows us to make correct decisions um, based on our individual wants and needs, right? At the individual level, we express our needs in the market. So does everyone else. That scales up, creates a price, and that whole system would be an institution. And why it's relevant in the fourth turning is because right now politics are divided. People are not cooperating with each other. They don't trust each other. Families are being broken apart. Friend groups based on these religious political ideals. And Bitcoin is a, a neutral monetary system that appeals to all political persuasions. Whether or not it's being pitched that way today, uh, that's another story. But the reality is it is. Mm. And I think it's the right type of institution to rally around, right? In a world where there's no trust, you don't have to trust Bitcoin. Bitcoin is open source. Bitcoin is math, right? You're trusting this inert protocol versus the, the politicians. Um, in a world where financial inequality is unfair, deplatforming, haves and have nots, Bitcoin doesn't know who you are. It can't discriminate because it doesn't know who you are, right? Mm -hmm. And it, it just forms this new trust institution that I think could help us um, transition out of the fourth turning and hopefully to a brighter world. Mm, God, so much I want to delve down into. Uh, why are human beings so different from the rest of the natural world? You're saying fourth turnings are unique to humanity. The need for institutions, are we naturally, I mean, everything's hierarchical. Everyone's got pecking orders, all of nature. Um, and yet, but they don't all do these kinds of cycles of collectivism versus individualism. Why is that? What's that about? Yeah, I think I think a lot of people would answer um, having to do with like fire or or tools or um, we have sex for pleasure or we have big brains or whatever. Um, I think the answer. 
Yeah, exactly. Thumbs. I think it comes down to the fact that we have the the capacity to abstract, uh, to use abstraction as a tool. And that means we can talk about um, a rock in a way that um, it's a weapon, right? It's a way to collect food. It's a fun, fun game to skip across the water with your pals, right? Where, where other animals do not have this uh, capacity to form abstraction. And maybe the most advanced ones do. I think probably elephants or dolphins or something, they probably have some degree of this. And what that what level of abstraction allows us to do is to create language. And we have a very complex form of language and language is sort of like the, the meta tool. It allows us to create all the other tools. It allows us to transport wisdom from 5,000 years ago to today mm-hmm. versus this, um, this sort of a wisdom only extends to the edges of your tribe and the people mm-hmm. you interact with. Right. Okay. Now we have spoken language, which means we can transmit oral traditions over time, massively improvement over no language. However, then we have written word, written word can last forever, theoretically. And so it allows us to sort of compound our ability to uh, understand things. And as we learn about the world, we can do more things. And so I think that all comes back down this incredible capacity to form abstraction, which is a Part of our later evolved brain, as far as we understand, it comes from the neofrontal cortex, the most recent evolved brain. Uh, some people might say that that occurred uh, during the same period that humans discovered psilocybin, which is a known uh, neurogenesis agent. It literally makes your brain form new connections, and it's focused on re- high forms of reasoning, abstraction, and language. Uh, pretty coincidental, uh, maybe not coincidental, We'll never know. Well, yeah, um, that's right. Cause, <laughs> also causes versus correlation because a lot of people also associate it with when we just discovered fire and started cooking meat. Um, I think the, fire was massive to our evolution. I, yeah. I would be surprised if both didn't play a role. I think fire for sure did. I think yeah. fire is what ultimately allowed us to speciate from our previous hominid ancestors mm-hmm. because fire essentially turns like we watched. Okay. Point in time, something happened. We don't know what it was. After this point in time, our bodies changed tremendously, right? Our brains got bigger. Our guts got shorter. Our jaw structure got smaller and weaker. Our teeth got weaker. Our lips got stronger and weaker. Um, All these different things happened, okay? And if you add up all those dramatic changes back to punctuated equilibrium, apes, 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 explosion and change that formed us, Um, And if you look at all those changes, they all fall back to the fact that we started cooking food. In other words, harnessing fire, Mm. Mm. because cooking food allows us to absorb nutrients easier uh, Mm. compared to a leaf, right? So we have to, we can eat one meal a day at the fire. And that one meal is easy to prepare, easy to digest versus an ape that has to eat 10 hours a day. Mm-hmm. Right. So now we have all this free time. We can go hunt. We can learn. We can travel. We can build tools. Um, that free time allows us to just do whatever we want. Um, but anyways, the physiological changes are all uh, downstream of fire, in my belief. But that wouldn't necessarily give us uh, language or uh, the most advanced forms of abstraction. So my belief is fire made us human and then psilocybin contributed to um, our neofrontal cortex in a way that uh, promoted language cooperation and 
made us more human, you could say, but not provable. <laughs> what an interesting idea. Has psilocybin, I know you get asked this a lot around, you know, it's, everyone's got this fascination with mushrooms. Um, has it played a part, you've talked about being very different people at different times in your life. Has it Definitely. been part of that journey? Has that expanded your consciousness to bring in different aspects of yourself at different stages of your journey? Yeah, massively. Um, I grew up mostly like a good kid in high school, um, strict parents. You know, I, I didn't even try cannabis until after my freshman year of college, for example. Um, after college, I started experimenting with psychedelics. Um, I would say it made a massive shift in who I am personally, um, mm -hmm. almost exclusively for the better. Now, at this time period, I was also going through yoga teacher training. I was also getting ready to quit the corporate rat race. All these things were at the same time. So it's hard to isolate um, mm -hmm. cause and effect, but it all happened at the same time. And what I attribute benefits wise to these tools that are relevant to your question would be things like, um, I don't have to take myself so serious all the time. I don't have to, I can be silly. I can be playful. Those are, those are positive things. Um, it's not all about this, like attainment, uh, this future attainment, which now ambition in a way sort of feels like a disease, even though I'm still highly ambitious, like it has to be in check. Otherwise you miss, you miss life. Um, it also gave me permission to um, pursue the things that I cared about and trust myself and not necessarily be a product of my environment and just sort of be molded by, um, you know, what my parents want, what my friends think is good. Like essentially just a mimetic, uh, pawn, it's just being told what to do versus listen to myself and, and think for myself. I think it also uncovered my desire for learning, which was stifled from education, as we mentioned earlier. Um, yeah, I would say it made me increasingly open-minded, but I would say I was already extremely open-minded and I would maybe even say that I became too open-minded during that period of life. And I think having, yeah, I think that's absolutely true. It also changed my perspective on spirituality. So I grew up Christian in a household with pretty serious Christian parents. Once I was maybe like 12, 13, when I could actually reason reasonably well, I started to poke holes in all of it. Thought I was smarter than my teachers and the pastors. So I, you know, became a militant atheist to prove them all wrong. And then getting into psychedelics, I was like, okay, never mind. I don't know shit. Um, <laughs> I should be a little more humble with the bigger questions in life. And I've sort of settled in the middle. I, I find the religions have tremendous social value and tremendous wisdom buried in there, but maybe the institutions cause harm. So it's like, how, how do you relate to the wisdom and, and not cause problems? That's kind of where I am now. Um, yeah, those are some ideas that come, came for that transition. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think those two things have to be at odds. I think you can absolutely take the, you know, the wisdom texts and, and incorporate them into something that's a deeper spirituality for you personally. Um, let's go back to, let's go back to Bitcoin. Um, we're talking about how humans, um, how humans organize themselves and need to organize themselves differently from nature. Um, I was about to go to a quote, but I actually want to ask a question about that 
in amongst your articles, you've got the most, um, just I find it mesmerizing picture of all these different aspects of nature from um, tree roots to brains and hearts and lightning and kind of, and I believe that actually one of the things that really led to you writing the article about mycelium and Bitcoin and being a living organism was that you saw a picture of the lightning or a diagram of the lightning network and that kind of triggered, oh God, that looks like a, you know, it looks like mushroom roots. It looks like what goes on underneath the earth. So are you saying that humans can't organize themselves that way because we are fundamentally different from from other aspects of nature do we need a kind of and does nature actually organize itself that way to the degree that it's got pecking orders so it, it you know that that idea of the network versus the hierarchy almost seem at odds for me yeah, that's a super interesting question. And I would like to think more about the network versus the hierarchy and how, how those related because humans definitely do both, which I'll end my response with. Yeah. Um, but I don't want to forget that point. I knew, I'm going to meditate on this one. So first off, the, the image you're referencing is showing um, a bunch of different examples of what I call the network archetype. I think it shows up in various places around nature. Um, this would be our, this is how our neurons are, are architected, right? It's the centralized uh, network intelligence rather than this hierarchical rigid structure. Um, and what's interesting is that same archetype shows up all over from the biggest systems of our solar system, uh, not sorry, not our solar system, the total universe or a galaxy forms the same archetype. Um, mycelial networks form the same decentralized intelligence network archetype. It's everywhere. And so does Bitcoin. And what that says to me is that Bitcoin has formed a, a an evolutionary strategy, intentionally or otherwise, that is robust in nature. It keeps coming up. So the fact that it shows up all over the place in nature means that it's an effective strategy. Maybe it's not the only strategy, but it's clearly an effective strategy. Mm -hmm. And if you look at Earth, my um, fungi are the most successful organisms on our planet. Um, some of the early complex life were fungi. They survive all the cataclysmic events. They're extremely intelligent in a way that's much different than ours. And they're straight magic. They hold all our ecosystems together. Um, quick fungi detour here. Um, fungi are their own kingdom. There's more or types of fungi than plants and animals combined. Um, what we think about fungi are the mushrooms, the button mushrooms or the portobellas or psilocybin or whatever. Um, and that's just the fruiting body. That's the reproductive organ of the mushroom. Um, but the organism itself primarily lives underground or in, in uh, trees. And it's a one cell walled network of tubes and tunnels and pumps and pulleys. And it essentially connects all the trees and plants together. And it trades resources between trees. And the fungi are masters of chemistry. They digest their world through chemistry with these little tiny thread-like structures, they burrow into anything they want, use chemistry to digest it, break down those things into their valuable resources. Maybe it's phosphorus or nitrogen or whatever. And then it sells those minerals and, and resources up into the trees in exchange for fats and sugars, which the tree produces obviously through photosynthesis. And so there's an underground economy everywhere on the planet. Anywhere you see a plant, there's fungi there. And so 
that that architecture um, obviously is, is similar to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is decentralized. There's no brain, right? You cut the mycelial network in half. Now you have two. Um, it learns over time. If, if a predator comes, attacks the mycelial network, it sends information bi-directionally through this network to the mushroom scientists. They produce a new custom enzyme, best chemist on the planet. They ship that custom enzyme over to the predator to deal with the, the direct attack. And over time, the fungi, uh, the organisms, they build a chemical library of defense mechanisms designed to uh, keep themselves safe in their environment. And it just so happens that fungi and humans are very similar. And so the defense chemicals that fungi make often work for humans. And so things like penicillin and honestly, the majority of our medicine comes from the fungi kingdom. And so we're just doing our best to try to steal their ideas. And then pharma puts their label on them, uh, which is quite funny. But back to the decentralized network intelligence. So that occurs Bitcoin's the same, right? There is no brain in Bitcoin. It's a decentralized thing. You and I are a part of it. It learns from environmental stimuli, um, right? It's not software. It's not hardware. It's not money. It, it's it's this weird thing that sort of uh, learns and grows over time. It pays us to do its bidding with the block rewards. And so it's a sort of meta species, meta organism and lives on the internet. And I think it's... Um, yeah, because it's similar to fungi and it's that decentralized network archetype, what it says to me is that it's a good evolutionary strategy. So it lends confidence to the fact that Bitcoin is onto something and it's going to be hard to stop because it mimics that evolutionary mm. strategy. Now, um, I said I was going to wrap up with with um, humans are hierarchical. Bitcoin is a network thing. Yeah. And so, yes, primates are extremely hierarchical. Right, we have uh, sexual selection preferences. We form tribes and units, and who gets to eat first, who gets to mate first, who gets the best mates, all these things. Um, and it's deeply ingrained with us, even though we don't want to believe it. Um, our nature, back to our nature, is is real, and we just put fancy clothes on and pretend otherwise. And humans are actually very good at using nurture. Um, right, the animal kingdom, let's say, is ninety nine point nine 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 percent nature. And humans use our abstraction to form culture and we sort of wield tools like shame and guilt and, and other things like that in order to steer society in a way that fits the cultural context, right? At certain points in time, it was okay to have multiple wives and other times, and maybe it's just polyamory in the whole tribe and everybody raises everybody and that's just the strategy. Now, today, that would be generally considered insane. Right. And that's our that's our nurture. That's our abstraction layer being really powerful so we can actually change outcomes. But now in modern times, um, we have this uh, rigid hierarchy as our as a human structure. But yet we wield tools that have this network archetype. Right. What is the Internet? The Internet is a meta brain of all species network connected, sharing ideas in real time. And if, if you look at that from a very high level, there is an emergent intelligence that comes from our individual actions. We are a metabrain. We are each neurons contributing to this um, information layer of our species. And so essentially we're hierarchical creatures who deploy network systems because they have unique characteristics that we benefit from. Bitcoin would be one of those, obviously. 
but the internet is probably the first best example um language would probably be another example language is a you could look at it as an organism it learns it evolves there's no such thing as the english language right it's constantly evolving it's constantly shifting um yeah agreed agreed okay really fascinating it also makes me think of um you know the kind of the 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 quantum level versus the you know what goes on at the quantum level is quite different from what goes on at the at the physical level uh and so the way that those two things work it's almost like those strong forces and weak forces in nature um yeah anyway let's just uh, you've just got me thinking and now i want to start writing too um so you've just started talking about using the tool of kind of decentralization as it were and decentralized networks you uh referenced nick sabo before and those kind of these kind of core levels these core tools like language like money that are powerful base layers of society that lube the wheels that allow us to interact either with trust or trustlessly. So uh, let's just start on that. I've got three different quotes here. One is just about money and the others is uh, as kind of base layer. Then one's about kind of the problems with money as we have it today. And one then goes into kind of uh, Bitcoin. Uh, money is the most important coordination mechanism for society the most important coordination mechanism in society you said it lowers the trust required for global society to communicate value which enables more sophisticated cooperation i think this is pretty self-explanatory but i wouldn't mind you expanding on it i'm just going to read it again money is the most important coordination mechanism for society it lowers i reckon this is one of the best uh definitions you know robert breedlove does the what is money show and of course everyone comes in with a different definition of money this is great money is the most important coordination mechanism for society it lowers the trust required for global society to communicate value which enables more sophisticated cooperation i think that's a brilliant um definition can you just speak to that for a moment yeah thank you um Yes. So let's start from the bottom, right? Individual. Okay. Resources are scarce. If we could, we'd all have yachts and whatever things we want, but we can't. So we have to economize our time and our efforts to acquire the things we care about to the best of our abilities with all the trade-offs that come with sacrificing work for, for toys or whatever, right? That's a starting point. Um, now, money is this uh, lubricant, as you mentioned, and money is an abstraction. Humans uniquely uh, use this abstraction in order to uh, represent work. It's like a physical or digital token that represents I contributed to society. I, I did something valuable that someone else believes is valuable, and they gave me this money token in response. So it's essentially stored up work or stored up value that I created in the world. I can then uh, cash in this work that I did prior for claims on other people's time or other people's work. That's what money is. Now, there's different ways to say this is a good type of money, it's a bad type of money, right? You don't want apples to be money because two weeks later, the apples is rotten, right? So you need to have a durable thing. And there's all these different ways we can define good money. Um, what I'm trying to get at there is describing what money does at a coordination level for society. 
And I think one way to describe it is we each economize our own time, right? I like uh, bass fishing, so I work hard so I can have a nice boat to go bass fishing, whatever. And in that situation, we're all doing that. We're all we're all contributing our time and talents and trying to get the things we want. But how do we, how much does a bass boat cost, right? How much does that new fishing pole cost? Um, the market decides that. And how does the market decide that? Um, through this information layer, which we call money and an economy or market, I express my will into the world. And let's say I want to buy a bass boat, which means now there's more demand for that boat, which tells the boat supplier that, oh, wow, there's lots of people buying boats. Maybe I should produce more boats. I should invest more and figure out how to make boats better and cheaper. Um, right. So essentially information travels based on our individual actions. And mm -hmm. it travels all around the world and it reduces down to a price function. But it would be extremely hard for some centralized party to determine the price of that boat uh, without knowing all these conditions. And so that's what the economy does. It filters, it absorbs all the information from every single individual person and every change in the marketplace. And it spits out a single price for a single good. And that's important because what it does is it collectivizes all of our hopes, desires, wants, needs, and it, it informs businesses and other people on how to satisfy those wants and needs. And the, if you have a good bunny, you do a better job of communicating wants and needs. Um, if you have a bad bunny, obviously you have more shortages and, and all these like breakages that could have otherwise been avoided if we had a clean economic signal telling producers and consumers what to buy. Um, now, one, one way to look at this is if a, I think it's a earthquake in Chile, right? A lot of copper is produced in Chile. So an earthquake in Chile raises the price of copper because copper mines go down, which tells the market copper is more scarce, which tells all the producers that use copper that they have to raise their price which then tells the manufacturers of uh, goods and the distributors and the storefront owners, they have to raise their price, all right? All that thing happens in the background, but all you and I know is that uh, copper pipes went up in price in Australia, but you don't have to know anything about all those other millions of decisions that were made, right? So the economy itself is a meta brain that takes in all this information and money is just the, the token or the, the, the value layer that achieves that. And when I talk about lowering trust to increase cooperation, right, that's that's social scalability from Zabo. And what that means is that um, you don't have to trust me. All you have to do is trust the money. OK, so that allows two parties or N parties to trade goods easier because I don't have to know what religion you're in or what you're trying to get out of it. I see the good you're selling. And I want the good and we trade and money is the medium. And that allows us to trade easier. That lowers the friction of trade because we don't have to trust each other. And if we scale that up to a society level, it allows us to make economic decisions uh, with fluid decision-making rather than all these siloed, rigid structures that don't really communicate, right? Historically, a Christian and a Muslim may not do business together because the Christians have this type of money, the Muslim have that type of money, and you can't agree, you don't trade, right? For a crude example, um, but today you might say my dollars don't work in Z a better way to say it. My Zimbabwe dollars don't work in America, mm -hmm. right? My Zimbabwe dollars don't even work in South Africa. So, okay. There's all these silos of money 
And if I'm an entrepreneur in Zimbabwe and I want to bring an idea to market, um, however, people don't trust me. They don't know about me. They don't have the capital structure. They don't have the legal structure to give me the, the start of capital to produce this business, right? We're sort of hurting ourselves as a society because we have all this siloed, rigid, like, little lakes of, of of money that don't communicate. Bitcoin shatters all these legacy fake, they're, they're really, really fake lines in the sand that say Zimbabwe dollars, US dollars or borders between countries. Bitcoin doesn't know borders. It doesn't know legal structures. It doesn't know the IMF. It doesn't know the central bankers. Mm. It just works. And as long as humans agree collectively that this is, turns out this might be better money. Mm. If we go down that path, it doesn't matter where you are or what your background is or what your political views are. The money works for you, right? So that radically decreases that cost of trust and trust is expensive and it radically increases cooperation because of it. So now we can fund entrepreneurs anywhere in the world because they can compete in the global economic game because the money works for them. Whereas currently without Bitcoin, it wouldn't work for them. And so that actually, I, I, I take this all the way to, it's our moral imperative to make this new money a reality because uh, not only does it help the individual in Zimbabwe who wants to bring his idea to market, his family's better, his economy, his local, his local economy's better, but it also, all it takes is one Elon Musk hiding in Zimbabwe that wouldn't bring their idea to bear, but now can. And that one idea changes the world and everyone benefits because of it. Right. Imagine uh, Bach <laughs> growing up before we invented the piano. Everyone who appreciates piano music sense or who influ was influenced by him would suffer because we didn't get the piano invented in time. Um, that's the same thing with money, but money touches everything. And so how many Maya Angelos are buried in, in a situation where they can't get their ideas out there? Um, how many Nikola Teslas are we not brought to market because of technology? Right. So it's our it's our imperative uh, to do so. Wow. What a concept. That's great. Yes, indeed. I mean, I thought about it as a moral imperative, but not in that way. That's terrific. Um, let's speak about bad money for a moment and the consequences of bad money. Think of all the waste created by a fiat system, bank bailouts, never ending wars and capital misallocation. I think you've just spoken to capital misallocation. Uh, can we just speak more broadly about the problems with fiat as we currently have it? Definitely. So there's a long way and a short way. Um, I'll try to do the medium way. So <laughs> we use precious metals. We, we sort of collectively agreed on as a, as a society all around the world that precious metals made good money. That's the longest lasting form of money. Then in the 19th century, we, we sort of are starting to globalize. We have this industrial revolution. Then we go into the 20th century. We're, we're definitely a global society now, right? And in that type of environment, what happens? Gold does not transfer, gold does not work as a global money very well because the speed of commerce at the time, the demands of commerce were so fast that gold was not up to the challenge. So what happens is you put gold, and this happened before the 19th, 18th, 19th, 20th century, to be honest, it probably happened in, um, well, it doesn't matter. We don't have to go back too far. Point being, gold gets centralized in a vault and they give you paper claims to the gold because paper claims are much easier to facilitate trade. And that's true. That was probably the right decision at the time. 
even though Bitcoiners would be like fiat evil, fiat evil. It also was necessary because gold failed as a technology, monetary technology as society advanced. Okay. So now we have fiat money and fiat money is a claim to the gold. It starts as a claim to the gold. It's just a receipt for the physical money, the gold. Um, but then governments get a little bit needy. Maybe this is because of a war. Maybe this is because of uh, political reasons. doesn't matter what it is. Governments break the tether to that, that uh, fixed supply asset or uh, relatively fixed supply asset of money. And you need to have a relatively fixed supply of money because there's a relatively fixed supply of goods. You can't have infinity money chasing finite goods. It just ultimately causes problems. And so essentially governments would say, oh no, the barbarians are at the gate. We got to print more money out of thin air in order to save ourselves, right? You can just, and maybe that's worthwhile, right? Maybe defending ourselves militarily is a good time to break the money because the, the other outcome is worse. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to make it a neutral, value neutral uh, decision path and how we got here, okay? Now, as of in the early 70s, we we totally left gold. There's no such thing as backing. Fiat money is just trust us, bro. Don't worry about it. Um, and the government of the US Federal Reserve is saying that, and most mostly people agree. And so what that leads to is a inflating money supply. So the money supply keeps increasing at a rate higher than the goods are increasing. And what that means is that your money buys you less every year. And what that means practically is that normal people cannot save the fruits of their labor in money anymore because you save your money and you know a few years later it buys you less. So you retire and you saved all your money, but you don't have enough retirement to survive. And so it forces every normal person on the planet to become a part-time investor, part-time stockbroker, a part-time whatever. And the reason is because the money loses purchasing power because they print it too much. And so that has a very high cost on individuals because no one can save. And that creates a very fragile society as well because savings are hard to come by. And what are savings? Savings are defenses against a future uncertainty. It protects you from the uncertainty uh, in the future and it allows you to take more risk. That's a very good thing for society. We want our governments to have savings. We want corporations, individuals, we want everyone to have savings so that they're not um, acting short-term, right? They can think long-term, they can take a long-term risk because long-term risk-taking is when humans are at our best. When we're creating businesses, when we're thinking long-term, um, that's when we do our best work. And that that's sort of like why sound money matters. And another comment there is around moral hazards. That's sort of the, in the micro level, we want a, a, a fixed supply asset like Bitcoin. So when, when you work, you can save that in the future. You don't have to think about it. You don't have. To, you should be a dentist. You shouldn't be a dentist and a stockbroker. That's crazy. Mm -hmm. And so allow people to specialize in their their best craft and then save their money. Great. Now, if we zoom out to the the society level, there's also a high cost to having fiat money, and this is directly related to interventionalism, meaning the the central bankers step into the market and uh oh something bad happened, and then they change the rules of the game. Mm -hmm. Okay. And every time they change the rules of the game, there is a cost. It might not be obvious at first. It, it, they, they do their best to hide it. And they call these things like the Troubled Asset Relief Program in 0809, which sounds pretty important. Like, of course, we want to save the troubled assets. We give them some relief. Who could be against that? <laughs> um, 
but the reality is they just print new money out of thin air and give it to the people that they want to give it to in in that case the bankers and so anyways there's there's a high cost to these interventions and the cost is hidden the cost is unseen and it generally results in a devaluing of that currency and no one's aware of it day to day. You just wake up one day and you go, a ah, cheeseburger used to cost 25 cents. Now it's $25. How did that happen? Right. And so this slow, insidious theft from stealing purchasing power of the money and reallocated into the central planner's buddy's pockets. That's not good for society. Uh, it's extremely unfair. And every time you change the rules, you erode trust and you break the market. But there's also this moral hazard where um, once you figure out the game, which the corporations and the banks and the people close to the political machine do, they realize that they can take as many bets as they want. And if they win, they get to keep all the money. But if they lose their bet, the government will bail them out. Right. That's what the too big to bank, too big to fail banks, how they operate. That's how uh, large corporations operate. And. That essentially just creates an extremely fragile society where the largest institutions are gaming the system and we pay the bill every time. So it's privatized gains and socialized losses. And over time, you hollow out the middle class. You start to realize that people can't save. It's harder to buy a home. The millennials aren't having kids because they eat avocado sandwiches too much. No, it's because the economics are broken and they can't afford a home. And so they become uh, weary of the future and a bit nihilistic. And it causes tremendous issues for the for the, the future of our of our species when young people have no hope. Um, this is why populism is rising. I think this is why politics are so heated. It's because we look around and it's not working anymore. Mm -hmm. So we got to figure out how to fix it. Right. And so simply leaving the gold standard to a fiat money has all these downstream effects into culture, which was what I was trying to get to there. And I said I'd do the, the medium version. I think I did the long version or as short as I possibly could. <laughs> but it's a but it's a good explanation. It's a really good explanation of what goes wrong. And as you said, you know, so much of the culture wars these days, people think they're trying to fix it from this angle or that angle, and they're just missing what's going on underneath the surface uh, and and using, you know, trying to work with band-aids that aren't addressing the, the wound. Uh, let's just go on to a, something a little bit more hopeful. Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce this correctly. The mycelial archetype, is that how I pronounce it, um, is an emergent property of biology, which means Bitcoin was inevitable. Love that. So Thanos, I am inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the mycelial archetype as an emergent property of biology mm -hmm. and why Bitcoin therefore became inevitable. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I'm going to start with uh, central planning, which I like to pick on because it's important to pick on right now. Mm -hmm. um, no one decided that the network archetype that it was formed in mycelium and other forms, no one decided, hey, you should try this. This is a great idea, right? Maybe there's a God and maybe God said, try it, but let, let's suspend that for a minute. I don't, I don't think that's true. I think what happened was that fungi formed and what they realized through competitive uh, iterations over time, right? Through evolutionary pressures, 
nature discovered this network archetype as a good strategy. And that good strategy is good because it lasts so long. And the organisms that deploy that strategy are successful. And the organisms that maybe that don't deploy that strategy aren't as successful. And so essentially that network archetype, that network intelligence emerged out of trial and error through biology. It was selected for because it was effective. And then it became enshrined in like a very, very important part of our ecosystem because it couldn't be stopped, right? All the trees, all the food we like, all this stuff, all the topsoil, it all comes from fungi. And so it, it's so successful that we can now use it as a building block for the rest of biology. All complex plants rely on it, right? It's just so fundamental. And it emerged through trial and error, through evolutionary pressure. And what I mean with Bitcoin is that if that network archetype is so successful, um, and it shows up in all these different ways, it was inevitable that at some point humans were going to figure out how to make a network money. Just like we stumbled on creating a network, uh, information network, the internet, right? It was inevitable that we we're going to create a networked money because it's an effective strategy. It might've taken us 200 more years or we could have done it 50, 20 years earlier or whatever. We can debate about the timeline, but as soon as we found the network money, that's, that's when it became real. That's when, that's when, um, yeah, we crossed the chasm, however you want to describe it. Like as soon as it came out, it was done. And so will it, uh, Jeff Booth put up a, a tweet the other day about, uh, tell me, a, um, uh, look, I'm going to get this wrong because I didn't think I was going to quote it, but it was like a technology in time that's been open and, and, and um, better than what we've currently got that hasn't then taken over the world. And my example was actually the orbital engine the orbital engine was better than the combustion engine, but it got bought by, not that you can do this with Bitcoin, it got bought out by, as far as I know, um, Victor who made the uh, lawnmowers and shelved because it was a threat. So technologies can be buried, good, superior technologies can be buried is absolutely yeah and that's not, a, that's not a really the creation of it but the the um progression of it yeah so i think yes bitcoin could be stifled and it could be delayed and it could be hidden um but i think over the long scale of time the odds of us not rediscovering it are low um, like, yeah, we could blow ourselves up. We could end our species or something like that before the technology came. Um, and I, I think if you look throughout history, there's just like, actually I have the book right here. I'm just flipping through it right now. It's how to invent everything. Oh, it's blurry. It doesn't matter. The book is how to invent everything. And it essentially looks at the whole tree of technology. And it's like, okay, if we wanted to create a wheel, what are the prerequisites for a wheel, right? The ability to shape stone, um, the ability to want to transport long distances, whatever, I'm making this up. There's prerequisites for that wheel. And what the author looks at, or one of the things he looks at is, okay, the preconditions are set up for the wheel. Why did it take us a thousand years? It was staring at us, right? A compass, here's a good one, a compass. A compass is just a type of rock on a string. That's it. If you put a rock on a string, you can find north. 
okay but we we had the rock we had the string we wanted to find north for a very long time but it took forever to discover it right and so it's kind of a, a funny thing with technology and it's also optimistic right because how many things around us today do we have the prerequisites for but no one's combined them in a unique way yet and that's what satoshi did at least a decade prior to Satoshi releasing the white paper, everything was out there for someone to invent Bitcoin. We had proof of work, we had distributed systems, we had time stamping, we had cryptography, we had private key public, all the things were there, gossip networks. All Satoshi did was he combined these unique these elements in a unique way. And that's technology, right? You're just combining things and, and making them more complex uh, or make them do a new thing. And so I, I view Bitcoin the same way. It's a, it emerged out of our meta brain because we needed it, right? And I, I think that's a key element here is mm -hmm. there was a desire to create Bitcoin because the, the fiat system was starting to show its, its cracks. And so that sent a signal to all the people that may be sensitive to that idea to search for a problem. And luckily we had Satoshi when we did, um, I can't imagine today without having an alternative like Bitcoin, that would be a scary world. I would be much less optimistic. Um, but thankfully, Satoshi did discover that. Um, is it inevitable that Bitcoin succeeds? No, but I'm very confident that it will succeed because number one, it's it's as robust of a technology as I, as I can come across or anti-fragile is the right word. It's very, very, very hard to stop. So that's prerequisite. Um, for any technology to to not die. But number two is that it, it's Bitcoin's time, right? The, the Hugo quote, nothing is as powerful as an idea whose time has come. I think Bitcoin's time has come because it's a direct response to the flailing central planners, the flailing fiat system. And it gives me confidence when people radically change their life when they interact with this thing. And they donate their time and their talents. They create podcasts. They they spend hundreds of hours writing articles. They go to they spend all their money on conferences. They alienate themselves from their social group just to talk about <laughs> this thing. Right? This is a powerful force here, and we're, we're hijacked by it like the cordyceps mushroom. And that is an optimistic sign, right? That That is contributing to its inevitability because it creates soldiers, it creates evangelists. And Bitcoin is the people at the end of the day, right? If they shut down Bitcoin, we can just fork the UTXO set and create a new Bitcoin with new technology that's harder to stop, doesn't matter. And so I think the idea of a money out of state is inevitable. Is this current implementation the implementation? Uh, number one, Satoshi got a lot right. I'm shocked that this thing is so robust as it is with very little changes from day one. So kudos, Satoshi. Um, and I don't think we have to change it for it to last 100 or 1,000 years. Um, but even if it did, the idea would persist. And, and that's the most important thing. And so in our lifetime, Bitcoin's fine. In 100, 500,000 years, the idea of stateless network money will exist because it's an evolutionary strategy that's successful and it's the right way for humans to do money. It's just, it will outcompete other monies. Mic drop. Fantastic. <laughs> uh, feeling like a very positive note to finish up on. Any final words, anything you'd like to get out there to the universe? 
Hmm. Who am I speaking to? You want to give me like a super quick thought? Yeah. Who, who's your audience? Uh, who am I talking to? If someone you, if they've stuck in there this long, <laughs> which I'd be mighty impressed by, uh, someone new to all of this, what would you say to them? Orange pilling. Yeah. One yeah. I, first of all, we we went deep. We you know we went to the edge of what's knowable and we hypothesized a lot and we're, we're making very large statements so if we come off as crazy people that is totally reasonable uh that's a reasonable position to take uh but know that this this the place that us showing up here getting to this moment did not come easy it did not come quickly these aren't willy-nilly notions right this was many years many many painful hours of learning and unlearning and arriving at this conclusion and so just suspend your disbelief for a second and trust the fact that um there's a lot of work that led here okay so even if you don't agree give us a nod give us a chance uh to explore these ideas that's part one part two would be around money um, ask yourself do you actually understand money uh, oh, yeah, of course, I understand money. I get paid. No, you you don't. Money is incredibly deep. It's incredibly hard to understand. And realizing that better money is a produces better outcomes in society. Um, accepting that idea, which I don't think is hard to accept, would next let lend you to the, the next step, which would be what is the best type of money? And Bitcoin is simply a uh, an engineering of a monetary system from scratch um, after thousands of years of data and understanding of previous monies and how they work. And what's interesting about Bitcoin is it, it started from nothing. It came out of nowhere. Anonymous guy dropped it on the internet and humans have adopted it since. And all their prior monies more or less uh, evolved step-by-step step over time Right. And there was all these political factors and they made trade-offs to get there. And, and Bitcoin was just day one. Let's engineer the best form of money that I can make. That's what Bitcoin is. And I think it would serve you to explore this thing a little bit more. Um, hundreds of millions of people interact with it. That wasn't by accident. And so there's something here. The rabbit hole is deep. Buy a little bit today and then figure out the rest tomorrow. You don't have to be an expert to buy any. Just buy a little bit today. Um, because if you don't have some skin in the game, if you don't own some, the desire to study it will be uh, low. And that's normal. We have lots of things competing for our time. But once you own a little bit, you'll start to pay attention. If you start to pay attention, maybe you'll get curious. And um yeah, join, join us on the winning team because we are going to win and you can join today or you can join us in 10 years and your your future and your grandkids' future depend upon it. Yeah, beautiful. Brandon, thank you. Wow, what a fabulous, fabulous conversation. I really enjoyed that. Thank you for all the thoughts and everything you bring into the space. Appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you, Carrie. I very much enjoyed it. <laughs>